0: Greg didn't get the word because we just uh, got the word. The late determination is we will sing next Sunday night before the finger food. So that was a uh, recent determination that Greg was not aware of. So we will go ahead and announce that. That uh, Go ahead and uh, have our singing on the fifth Sunday and uh, our finger foods to uh, follow. We appreciate this good singing that Bobby and Tom... Uh, Tom now helping out on a more regular basis. Appreciate that so very much. And Bobby, and, uh, what he does. And um, we certainly uh, enjoy our singing, and it is a vital part of our worship to God, obviously. We are studying the epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians, the first epistle to the Thessalonians. And we are in chapter four, ready for chapter four. You've heard me mention before as we begin this chapter that the the real definition of an optimist is the member who reaches for his or her songbook when the preacher says finally in his sermon. That's, uh, that's the real optimist. Well, uh, right here Paul writes finally. But finally here uh, as it is used in the Greek does not indicate uh, a final statement but more the idea of for the rest, or what remains. Here's what remains. But it is a transitional word uh, that is often used in Scripture, and Paul is making a transition now in um, this particular part of his first epistle to the Thessalonians. Um, the... Uh, Initial uh, three chapters have dealt with uh, historical and retrospective matters uh, as he uh, looked back upon his uh, initial entrance to them and his work among them and their, their conversion and his confidence that he expressed and the joy that he expressed over what he had learned about their continued faith as Timothy had brought him that report. And now the remainder of the book is a prospective look as he exhorts and as he encourages them to to keep up the good work, so to speak, and to grow uh, in their faith, in their love, in their knowledge of of the Word of God. And so we have a perspective look in the remaining two chapters uh, of this great uh, epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians. Chapter 4, we'll look at uh, verses 1 through 12 uh, tonight. And as he does uh, tell us, finally here, or literally for the rest, this transitional expression, he says, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort, or we beseech and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God. And what we see here, as we have often talked about, is the expression here on the part of the Apostle Paul that lets us know immediately that the Christian life is not a life of, uh, of neutrality. It is not a life of resting on one's laurels. It is a life of constant application to to growth and to, to reach uh, higher attainment, higher ground as we often sing. Uh, I'm pressing on the upward way. I'm i 'm pressing toward higher ground. that is what every child of God uh, ought to do uh, not to be uh, not to be uh, content with where we are, but to have a healthy dissatisfaction and I stress a healthy dissatisfaction because it is certainly not the case that we need to be dissatisfied and constantly wondering whether or not we are uh, in the Lord, whether or not we're pleasing God. That's not what we're saying. But a healthy dissatisfaction is the kind of dissatisfaction that says, I am, not, uh, I am not completely satisfied with with resting where I am, but I am determined to move on. That's what Paul expressed in another of his epistles in the Philippian letter. At chapter 3, when he said, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the mark of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the healthy dissatisfaction that every child of God should have. We are certainly at peace with ourselves. We are. Uh, those who rejoice in the Lord, but at the same time we understand that we're to abound more and more. That's what Paul is expressing here. You remember back in chapter 3, near the end of that chapter, at verse 12, Paul wrote, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. Increase and abound. Those are two superlatives. Increase and abound. Keep on growing. Now, in, uh, as he continues here, he says, Abound more and more. Look over at chapter uh, 4 verse 11. Just several verses later. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life. Or I'm sorry verse, uh, verse 10. But we urge you brethren that you increase more and more. So here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. Abound more and more. In verse 10 of chapter 4. Increase more and more. Back at verse 12 of chapter 3. That you increase and abound in love. It is abundantly clear that the Apostle Paul is urging them and exhorting them to apply themselves to growth. And certainly that is not peculiar to Paul's writings. It permeates the New Testament. The idea of growth, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Peter uh, admonished. Uh, 1 Peter chapter uh, 2. And verse 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, the American standard adds, unto salvation. That is, toward that eternal and ultimate salvation. We are constantly moving forward. We are never satisfied to sit still if we're children of God. And yet we're satisfied in the sense that we're at peace. We enjoy the peace that surpasses understanding, the unspeakable joy. But at the same time, a healthy dissatisfaction. That's what the Christian life is about. And there's no contradiction between saying we are to be healthily dissatisfied and at the same time content. Content with what we have, as the scripture admonishes, but not content with where we are in the sense that we constantly want to do more. We constantly want to strive to please God by growing in all of the wonderful Christian graces that are enumerated for us in various places. In Scripture. And so, brethren, he says, we urge or beseech and exhort. And these two terms, urge or beseech and exhort, are very similar, though one is somewhat stronger, the word exhort, a little bit stronger than, than the idea of urging or beseeching in some translations, but the idea of imploring warmly and tenderly, a little more tenderness in that first word than in the second. But he does not hesitate to use the word commandment, notice in verse 2 for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And incidentally in the latter part of, of um, chapter 4 verse 1 he uses a phrase that is so characteristic of the Apostle Paul or a word there. The word is walk, walk which again reminds us in that figure that is used there that the Christian life is a life of activity. It is not a question of resting. But it is a question of laboring to enter into the eternal rest that awaits those who will walk with God and thus please God by walking. For you know what commandments we gave you. No question about it. There are specific commandments in the word of God. But notice how he phrases it. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. We mentioned this morning that in many Bibles and in many New Testaments you have the words of Jesus in in red letters. And there are those who have tragically and mistakenly thought that that's the only important part of the New Testament. If it's not in red letters, I don't have to be that concerned about it. As If the Lord didn't say it, then it's not... Uh, on equal ground or it's not equally authoritative with everything else that's in the New Testament. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth. Obviously, Paul makes that clear right here in this expression, doesn't it? When he says, for you know what commandments who we gave you, but what? Through or by the authority of Jesus Christ. And so what the apostles wrote, what every inspired writer of the New Testament wrote was by the authority of of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says to us, as recorded in John 12:48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. He's not referring only to the words that he himself spoke, but those that he also authorized through the commandments of the apostles and the other inspired writers. And those writers never contradicted The Lord Jesus Christ only complimented but never contradicted what the Lord himself taught. And he goes into some specifics then concerning those commandments in verse 3 of our text. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now when he says sanctification, if you'll drop down to verse 7, you'll see that he writes there, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. The word holiness and the word sanctification back in verse 3 are the exact word in the original. They both come from a word which indicates to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be holy. And that's the idea of holiness, is to be set apart. And what he is saying to us very clearly, to us, every Christian for every Uh, for every generation is that it is God's will for us that we be holy people, that we be set apart, that we be sanctified, set apart for a holy use. Peter wrote of this in his first epistle. And he tells us that we are to gird up the loins of our minds. Verse 13 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then he says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Paul is going to talk about that lust right here now. Now. But as he who called you is holy, sanctified is the idea here, holy, God is perfect in holiness. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Literally the idea of become holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. The perfect standard of holiness is God the Father. And we're to emulate that standard of holiness to the best of our finite human ability. We are to seek to be holy as God is holy, sanctified, set apart. Now initially that sanctification process where we are freed from past sins takes place when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, repent of our sins, confess him to be the Christ and are buried in baptism for the remission of sins. We're sanctified at that point in time obviously but the sanctification process must be maintained, we must remain sanctified, and we must become more like God every day that we live. And so the sanctification process continues. Yes, we're freed from our past sins, and we continue to remain free from those sins that we continue to commit despite our best efforts, as we do what, as John wrote? Walk in the light as He is in the light, confess our sins to the Father. As we keep up that walk, as we keep applying ourselves to sanctification or holiness, God, through the blood of His Son, keeps on cleansing us. And what a beautiful thought and reassuring thought that is, that we have that ongoing forgiveness. But we are to remain sanctified. We're not to to let up. We are not to relax in our efforts to continue to be holy as He is holy. And a part of that holiness, obviously, is to abstain from sexual immorality. Why was that such an important subject as Paul mentions it here? Because the environment in which these Thessalonians lived was an environment of sexual immorality and where fornication was viewed as something that was completely indifferent. It was not viewed as sin by the pagan societies from which these Thessalonians had come as they obeyed the gospel and came away from that kind of life. It was all around them. They would constantly be reminded, I'm sure, that what you are abstaining from is of no uh, significance whatsoever. You don't have to live like this now. You can still live like we do. Sexual immorality was rampant among pagan societies. That's why virtually every New Testament writer addresses it in more than a casual fashion because it was a prevalent problem then. But let me ask you. How much less of a problem is it in the society in which we find ourselves tonight? We wish we could contrast the then and the now. But it really, tragically, is more of a comparison, isn't it, of the then and the now? Because immorality, sexual immorality, is rampant in our country and becoming more so, more acceptable, more legalized. You name it. That's where we... And he goes on, verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. That's an interesting statement that some commentators have viewed as as, uh, possessing your own wife. Possessing your own wife in sanctification and honor. And the reason they come to that conclusion is because the word vessel is sometimes used to refer to Um, The wife, 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, uh, the wife is viewed there uh, as the weaker vessel, one to whom honor is to be given by the husband, as the what? Weaker vessel, not weaker intellectually, no indeed, but weaker in the physical sense. But because the wife is viewed in a passage like 1 Peter 3, 7 as a vessel, there are those who have concluded that that's what Paul is referring to here, Because he's talking about sexual immorality, and so you need to possess your own vessel, that is your own wife, in sanctification and honor. I personally do not believe that's his meaning at all here, though certainly that's a valid uh, truth that we should be faithful uh, to our spouses. But I think the context here, to me, more clearly indicates he's talking about your own body here. In other words, do not give yourself to sexual immorality, but possess your own vessel, your own body, which houses your immortal spirit. Possess that vessel in sanctification and honor. Verse 5, not in passion of lust, as the New King James renders it, like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, maintain self-control over your own body. And make sure you possess your body in sanctification, holiness, and honor, and not giving it over to the passion of lust like those out here in the world, he says, who do not know God. The implication obviously is that anybody who knows God doesn't give himself over to that kind of activity. And if you do give yourself over to that kind of activity, then it is proof positive that you do not know God. Because if you know God, you are not going to conduct yourself that way. Now, I think the spouse comes into the picture in verse 6 here when he says that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. In other words, defraud his brother by becoming involved with a brother's wife in a way that would defraud him, dishonor him as well as her, as well as one's own uh, body. Because to do so is to violate the will of God, obviously, but also because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. The marriage bed is undefiled, the Hebrew's writer reminds us, but adulterers and fornicators God will judge, God will judge. And we can think about what's happening in our country, and we can think about the, uh, the efforts that are being made and they're sickening efforts, frankly, sickening efforts to take this book and try to justify from this book the practice of homosexuality. And I have read arguments that people have set forth trying to cite New Testament and Old Testament, but well, particularly New Testament, I guess, teachings that homosexuality uh, is not condemned in Scripture. And yes, even going back to the Old Testament and trying to attribute to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah something other than that for which Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And claiming that homosexuality was really not what the Lord was concerned about when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It's very hard to get that out of the reading back in Genesis. And it is very hard to get from a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, anything but a clear condemnation of the practice of homosexuality. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he writes, and such were some of you, but you were what? Washed. You were what? Sanctified. The very thing we're talking about here. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of, that is by the authority of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The Spirit of our God that teaches us That such practices are contrary to the will of God and cannot be justified. And we love the sinner, as we have often said, but hate the sin. Therefore, we must oppose the sin of homosexuality and all other sin, while loving the sinner enough to oppose the sin. But we live in a time where that is changing In the mindset of so many people in our world, and those who oppose the sin, even while loving the sinner and making it clear that you love the sinner but oppose the sin, you can't convince those who uphold such sins that you truly love them, not if you're condemning their sin. That's the kind of relaxed, to say the least, absolutely loose society in which we find ourselves to a great extent today but we're to possess our vessel in sanctification and honor and that excludes the practice of homosexuality adultery any kind of fornication which is the broader term that includes bestiality and any kind of illicit intercourse we cannot please God by engaging in such and no matter what happens in our country And no matter how much legalization of such things takes place, ultimately God will avenge those sins. That's the tragedy. Therefore, we as God's people must stand against them and lovingly and continually warn those who are involved in such practices that they must come away from such. Because God, verse 7, did not call us to uncleanness. But he called us in holiness. Again, the same word as sanctification back in verse three, which indicates to be set apart for a holy purpose. To be set apart for a holy use. Now, what about those who what about those who would argue with the Apostle Paul about this or any of these other matters? What does he say? Verse 8, therefore he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. I believe that's a strong argument for inspiration Paul is making here. He's saying, you reject what I'm saying to you, and you haven't rejected me, only you've rejected God, because I am telling you what God says by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God has given us his Holy Spirit today in the sense that he has given us this word which is the product of the Holy Spirit by which we can know that we're to possess our bodies in honor and in sanctification. It's simply an affirmation that what Paul and others preached and taught was not from their own minds but was truly the mind of God being expressed them, And then in verses 9 through 12, some thoughts on brotherly love and how important that love is, not only for those who are in the body of Christ, but also for those who are outside the body of Christ to see the kind of love that we have for one another and hopefully to be attracted and drawn by that love, to be magnetized by what they see in The Christian has to be different. And if he's no different than those out here in the world, and if his dealings with those in the world do not reflect his genuine Christianity, then there can be no magnetizing power in that kind of life. Remember the Lord said, Let your light so shine before men, all men, that they may see your good works. And what? Glorify the Father who is in heaven. And so Paul here writes in the last three verses we'll examine tonight, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That's a given. That's something that's basic. That's something that's absolutely fundamental to our lives as Christians. And then he commends them. He says, and indeed you do so. You do show that you know that you're taught by God to love. Because you're showing that love toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But what does he say as we alluded to it earlier? You're doing it. But I want you to what? I want you to do even more. But you, brethren, we urge you, brethren, that you will increase more and more. That's why we've often said we don't examine ourselves concerning the matter of love or any other characteristic of the Christian life and say, now, love, I love enough. I think I've reached that point now. I love enough. Don't need to love anymore. I'm I'm right where I want to be with love and I don't need to grow in that regard. What about faith? No, don't need to grow there either. No, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter admonished in 2 Peter three eighteen. And as you do, you are going to grow in love. You are going to increase and abound in love. You are going to increase in faith. Christian life is a process. A process. And the, la- the moment we take our last breath, we are still growing individuals, or should be, that you also aspire, verse 11, to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Not to be idle, not to be slovenly in your activity, but to be the kind of example to all mankind that you should be to lead a quiet life, a life with with contentment, learning how to be content. We had Barry Gilreth, Jr. on just Friday afternoon taping some segments for Good News Today, and we did four segments on stress. And Barry has had 20-plus years of counseling and graduate training in counseling, and he was giving some very, very practical pointers about how to relieve stress. And one of them was learn how to be content. Learn how to be more content, and that is practical advice. It may seem simple, but uh, we really just need to be aware that, wait a minute here. I need to, I need to slow down perhaps in terms of uh, my aspirations about what I'm wanting, what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to achieve. Am I leading that quiet life, that life of? of contentment, or am I constantly wanting more, striving for more, trying to get this, trying to get that, so I can, as the old expression goes, keep up with the Joneses, etc., or exceed them? (laughs) Lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your own hands, as we commanded you. And verse 12, that you may walk, and there he is walking again, one of Paul's favorite expressions. The Christian life is a life of continual activity, but here he specifically focuses on our walk in relation to those who are outside the body of Christ. So very important. That you may walk properly toward those who are outside. Meaning what? Those who are outside the body of Christ, those who are outside the church. That you may walk properly toward them and that you may lack nothing, that you may lack nothing. And so we're to constantly strive to be the kind of example that we need to be to those who are outside. It's not the only place that Paul gave such an admonition. In his Colossian letter at chapter 4 and verse 5 he wrote, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, outside the body of Christ. And then he adds in that phrase, redeeming the time. Buying up the opportunity is literally the idea of redeeming the time. Looking for opportunities to influence those who are outside. Jerry mentioned his mailman was here this morning. I'm assuming he invited his mailman at some point in time or had some influence with his mailman. And he was here this morning. Made Jerry very happy. And us too. Look for opportunities to be the kind of influence that a Christian needs to be. Not only by issuing invitations, not only by words that we speak, but by lives that we live, so that when we issue invitations, those who know our lives will pay more attention to the invitation because it's coming from someone they know to be sincere and serious about living the Christian life. Walking. Paul has talked about it, written about it here, quite a bit in these verses we've studied tonight. And as we close our thoughts on these verses, an appropriate question would be, how are you walking tonight? If you haven't obeyed the gospel of Christ, it's quite obvious that you're not walking at all, tragically. You're not walking with the Lord because you have not come to the Lord in obedience to his gospel. And if you haven't, we plead with you to do that. By expressing your faith in him, By repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, and being buried in baptism for the remission of sins. And if you're here tonight as one who has done those things, but you know tonight your walk is not as it should be, and that others know that it's not as it should be, in other words, that's publicly known, then make it right in as public a way. If it's private matter between you and the Lord that you need to correct, take care of that, and we obviously do that as we... Pray regularly and confess our sins before the Father in heaven. But there's, if there is something that needs to be corrected publicly tonight in the life of a wayward child of God, we plead with you to do that through repentance, confession of that wrong, and prayer to God as we pray with you and for you. Will you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?